This is Coping with Dystopia from Dare to be Grey, and this is the show about finding ways to flip the script on our dark times. I'm Jonathan Gruber, and today we're coping with fascist dictatorships. Yeah, the Russians, when they issue their fatwas, like the Iranians, they never forget. Look what happened to Salman Rushdie 33 years after his fatwa. They're still coming after me in a lot of different ways, unfortunately. That's the American-British financier Bill Browder. And when he says the Russians issue fatwas, he means Vladimir Putin himself. Bill Browder is author of the Magnitsky Act that has named and shamed many a corrupt Russian official and made them persona non grata all over the world. And this, of course, means Mr. Browder now has to watch his back every moment of every day. And just why he chose to take on Vladimir Putin and the Russian government is one of the most incredible and saddest stories I've ever heard. More of this amazing story in a few minutes. But now, as always, let's bring in the Dare to be Great duo, Hannah and Jordy. Hi, guys. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Jonathan. How are you? I am excellent. Although this story, it's a real doozy. But before we, we get to it, let's just start with the title, right? Coping with Fascist Dictatorships. What did you make of the choice, Jordy? Uh, well, <laughs> I, I think it's an interesting and maybe bold choice even. Um, thinking about fascism, you know, it seems to be a label people put on pretty much anything they disagree with these days. Um, so I think for this episode, it's important to really focus on what, what, what does it mean, fascism? Um, so we did some research and we just opened a dictionary. Uh, (laughs) fascism can be described as a political philosophy or a regime that exalts nation or race above the individual and stands for a centralized autocratic government with one dictatorial leader. So yeah, not every person we disagree with is a fascist, but I think when I when I think about Putin and the Russian regime, it comes dangerously close, right? I'm not like a political scientist or something who work, works on these kinds of definitions. But it seems like you need to have something of a one-man show and a personality cult. And in, and in that sense, I think, think it comes pretty close. But is that like the real thing? Uh, yeah, maybe it is the real thing. Um, also thinking about, you know, the, the, the worrying developments we've been seeing all over the world. Um, I would also count Hungary, maybe, Brazil under Bolsonaro, the Philippines recently, your native country, the USA also had a... They got really close, really close, took a step back. A bit of an experiment with fascism under the Trump presidency, didn't they? But, uh, you know, and that's... They were fascism curious. <laughs> fascism curious, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's quite amazing to see how important institutions are, right? They seem to have hold. Yeah. They prevented worse things from happening in the U- United States. Yeah. So norms, right? It, it, I would still count that as a proper democracy. Division of power, uh, institutions that protect fascism from happening. And if I then think about Russia, yeah, I would, I would definitely label it as a dictatorship, fascist dictatorship, maybe even. And we've now got more growing, really, haven't we? around the world, and uh, in Europe especially. And we've just got Giorgio Maloney, the leader of the fascist Fratelli d'Italia, as the new head of the Italian government. Um, and with this being the first time since the Second World War that a party with fascist roots have led the government in a major European country, it's pretty boring, don't you think? That really scares me. I mean, it. I think a lot of these things are like flawed democracies. For example, when we talk about Hungary, uh, they have a lot of the trappings, I think, of dictatorship, like they don't no longer have a free press, for example. But the one thing they do still seem to have is free and fair elections, or I should say free elections, not fair, because the government is, is in control of the media, and therefore the people don't get a complete message. There's no real yeah. debate. But the elections themselves are not flawed in the sense that nobody's stuffing a ballot box. It's just that the government that's in control, right, Viktor Orban and his Fidesz party, just ensure that everybody will vote for them anyway, because they never hear from the opposition. 
because they control the media. Absolutely. It's kind of a democratic dictatorship. A democratic dictatorship. Jordi Nienhaus, 2022. <laughs> democratic dictatorship. <laughs> you make an interesting point there, Jonathan, because then you have to start looking at elections really all around the world and international interference and, and things like the Cambridge Analytica scandal and Brexit and who gets involved in them and how is is an election really fair anymore? Yeah, I think to be fully accurate, say a lot of flawed democracies, a lot of countries that have long histories of democracy backsliding into what could become fascism mm -hmm. if we're not careful. Definitely. So this is, I guess, part of what we mean when we say coping with fascism in the in today's show, right? Yeah. How do how do we find a way out of this? Yeah, that's a very interesting question, right? Um, also over here in the Netherlands, they're now uh, proposing a new law in which they can ban political parties that undermine democracy. And that, for me, that raises a million questions. Can we still call it a democracy when we're banning freedom of speech, when we're banning political parties? So it's, it's definitely a, a dystopian time. Difficult to decide which ones there are going to be the ones undermining democracy. Yeah, who gets to decide that, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and at the same time, if you don't, because this is the, the catch-22 of the situation, is if you don't start banning political parties that actually undermine democracy, what you end up is with... Uh, a political party masquerading as democratic that is actually fascist in your parliament working to undermine democracy. Mm -hmm. It's the paradox <laughs> of tolerance. Can exactly. you be tolerant to the intolerant? That's exactly right. Pretty dystopic. <laughs> that, my friend, is dystopic. You are correct, Hannah. You've said it right. Shall we move on to Bill Browder? Absolutely. Let's do it. So this is, believe it or not, the second time I've interviewed Bill Browder. I made a documentary about him way back in 2011 when I was the host of a show called The State We're In. And uh, I, I didn't make it alone, obviously. I made it with The State We're In team, an amazing group of people. And I wish those shows were still online. But anyway, Bill Browder was the subject of a gripping documentary film called Justice for Sergei. So what I'm going to do is replay the original piece for you, the 2011 piece, and then we'll come back to the present to see how things have developed since this story, because I did a second interview with Bill Browder just a couple of weeks ago to see how things have moved along. Now, the story back in 2011 begins with a threatening phone call. This call was made to investment manager William Browder and his staff at the Hermitage Fund. They're now based in London, but they began in Moscow. To replay the message, key one. I went to Russia in 1996 to invest in the Russian stock market. And um, from 1996 until 2005, my fund went up 40 times in value. So if you put $1,000 into my fund, it would be worth $40,000 10 years later. We became the largest foreign portfolio investor in Russia with $4.5 billion under management. And we also distinguished ourselves in one way, which I'm most proud of, which was the way in which we made this money was by exposing corruption inside the companies in Russia that we invested in. Russia is objectively a truly horrible, corrupt place. And the way we chose to deal with the corruption was by researching how it was done and then exposing it through the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. And by doing so, it embarrassed them and shamed them into stopping a number of the things that we exposed, which increased the value of our investments. And so this was one of the few occupations in life where you could make money and do good in the same activity. Imagine that, a high-flying financier actually cleaning up corruption. And for a few years, he succeeded, until it all went tragically wrong. That tragedy is why I met William at a film festival in The Hague, where he was featured in a documentary called Justice for Sergei. When we started our campaigns, our anti-corruption campaigns, um, we ended up with an unlikely ally, which was Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia. We were fighting with oligarchs and government officials who were stealing money from the companies we invested in. And it turned out that he was fighting with these same people who were stealing power from him when he first became president. And so although I never met him, never had a conversation with him, um, we had a confluence of interests, which were I was fighting with the guys um, to stop stealing, and he, he was doing the same thing. And so when we would expose a, uh, a corruption scheme at Gazprom or the National Savings Bank or the National Electricity Company, 
we would get a call almost uniformly the next day or the following week from the chief of staff to the president or the finance minister or the um, energy minister saying, um, we read about that in the newspaper. Could you come and brief us? And I was regularly with my head of research going to the Kremlin, going to the government building where all the ministers sat with our PowerPoint presentations showing how money was being stolen from all these companies. And they were uniformly acting on our recommendations. And so for about four years, I was very bullish on the whole process. The only problem was that their war with the oligarchs ended in 2004 when they arrested and imprisoned the richest man in Russia, Michael Hordakovsky. And at that point, our interests no longer coincided. And in fact, we ended up being in conflict with the Kremlin because we were still naming and shaming all the corruption schemes that they were then essentially involved in. That's right. And then on November the 13th, 2005, you were returning to Russia from a trip. What happened? I presented my passport at the desk at the VIP lounge of the airport. And instead of whisking me through as as they normally did the 250 times before that I had traveled from abroad into Russia, um, they stopped me. They, there was a lot of commotion around the uh, passport desk. A bunch of uniformed officers came in and they escorted me out of the VIP lounge and down to the um, holding cell of the airport. They kept me there for the next 15 hours, and then they put me on a flight back to London, annulled my visa and my passport, and declared me a threat to national security, and I was never allowed back into the country after that. When was the first indication that something was not the same? Well, on that particular evening, I had struggled with my bag just to get through the airport quicker, and I sat down uh, in, the, in the lounge to um, wait for my passport. And my first reaction was, it's taken so long with my passport. And at that point, I actually sent my driver to the front desk where they were dealing with the passports to have him figure out what was going on. And he was a man, six foot three, a real rock of a man. It never showed an, a flicker of emotion. And as he started to engage with the um, uh, people at the front desk, I realized, I saw his face and it looked like he had seen a ghost. And at that point, I approached the desk to see what was going on, and that's when the officers arrived, and, and uh, they said, you're, no, you're not allowed into the country. Um, so it was quite a, a shocking and enormous betrayal. Um, I thought, if anything, I should get an award for a civic duty. A betrayal? Uh, yeah. I, I felt like I, w- I had been giving my heart and my soul to Russia. I, I loved Russia. My uh, grandmother was from Moscow. I went back there after the fall of the Berlin Wall to participate in the rebuilding of Russia, And I thought that that was just the worst thing they could do to me um, because uh, they they were uh, really a slap in the face to to all of my efforts and all of my hopes. While all this was going on, your company back in Russia, you weren't there, obviously. While all this was going on, your company got a telephone call from a government official. Who was it? Well, let me just uh, present the sequence of events. So I got kicked out. After I got kicked out, I made a a decision, a a very sharp and abrupt decision, which is that I didn't want to suffer the same fate as Michael Hordakovsky, the head of UCOS, when he had his company taken away from him. And so... That is going to jail more or less forever. Going to jail forever and having all of your assets taken from you. And and so I I did two things. One is I I wasn't going to go to jail in Russia since I, I was already out, but I didn't want any of my employees going to jail. And so I evacuated my entire team. And the second thing I didn't want was to have all of the assets seized like Yukos's were. And so I, I sold every last share that I held in Russia. We quietly sold $4.5 billion of the stock in the Russian stock market in 2006 and got it all out. Um, having said that, I still wanted to get back to Russia very much. And so in, in January of 2007, which now at this point was, I guess, 14 months or 13 months after I had been kicked out, I had the opportunity in, at the World Economic Forum in Davos to um, speak to Dmitry Medvedev, who's currently the president, but at the time was the first deputy prime minister. And I asked him, I said, I haven't been in Russia for a long time. I think I'm a positive contributor to the country. Can you get my visa reinstated? And uh, while I was asking him, um, a number of foreign journalists um, had gathered to see what was going on. And he was making his international debut in Davos. And so I guess his his calculus was that this would be a good thing to respond affirmatively to. And he said, yes, give me the application and I'll do what I can to help. So I gave him the application the next day. And the next thing we knew was instead of getting a visa, we get a, a 
A strange phone call from Lieutenant Colonel Artum Kuznetsov from the Moscow Tax Crimes Department of the Interior Ministry. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm the assistant of William Browder. Let me explain to you what the situation is. Mr. Browder sent in an appropriate application requesting permission to enter the Russian Federation. I just wanted to drop by and discuss it, if that's possible, just to go over the list of questions we have for you. And the sooner you answer, the quicker all the problems will be resolved. Now, this is Russia we're talking about. So when somebody says that they want an informal meeting, what does that mean? You, do, you never have an informal meeting with a police officer unless your intention is to give a bribe. And his intention was to extract a bribe or to extort a bribe or to do something along those lines. And so we, we responded, we don't do informal meetings. If you have questions, submit them to us in writing. Give us a deadline and we'll reply to them in writing. So he approached us in mid-February of 2007 and then the same Artum Kuznetsov, who wanted this informal meeting, um, led a team of 25 officers raiding our offices on the 4th of June, 2007, with a very specific task, which was to try to get hold of the stamps and seals and certificates of the investment holding companies through which we had invested our money in Russia. Why? Well, that was our question as well. What, what does he want from these companies? Now, fortunately for us, as I mentioned before, we had liquidated every last penny we held in Russia, so they were empty. He didn't know that. Three months after he got hold of all these documents, um, we discovered that we no longer owned our investment holding companies. They had used the documents to fraudulently transfer the ownership of these companies into the name of a man who had been convicted of murder and let out of jail after one year to basically be the signatory. Basically, the police working with a, um, a convicted murderer stole our companies. And at this point, we said to ourselves, this is very ugly and very serious. It was at this point that William Browder called in his lawyer, a man named Sergei Magnitsky, the inspiration for the documentary Justice for Sergei. Sergei was, was one of these guys who like knows how to do everything. Every one of his clients went to him to say, I don't understand such and such. We'd call him up at 8 o'clock at night which would be 11 o'clock in Moscow on his mobile phone. And he said, let me get back to you. And two hours later, you know, one in the morning his time, he'd have an answer that would have taken some prestigious English law firm all week to do. Before this, this tragedy happened, what most impressed you about him? Well, I, I would guess what most impressed me about Sergei was how he dealt with the unfolding tragedy. Everybody would like to think that they have solid morals and they have their, their integrity would always be intact. But you never know about yourself and you never know about anybody else until you're placed in a, a situation of duress. And Sergei was placed in the most unpleasant situation where they basically tortured him to death slowly. And during the torture, they gave him an opportunity. At any point, Sergei could have made his own life comfortable or potentially lived if he had just signed whatever lies they wanted him to put his signature to. But at no point was he ready to do that because his personal integrity was more important than the physical pain he was suffering. Today's show is called Seeking justice. And that's something William Browder has been doing for years now. He's the CEO of the Hermitage Fund, which was the biggest fund in Russian history, until corrupt government officials deported him, raided his office, and stole his company right out from under him. After the raids, and when all this really ugly stuff started to happen, we um, called up Sergei, and we said, we were panicking. We didn't know what was going on. And, and he was the, this rock of a man who you could go to and he would say, don't worry, we'll figure it out. Sergei's full name is Sergei Magnitsky. He's the inspiration for the documentary Justice for Sergei. He was also the lawyer William turned to when everything was going from bad to worse. Sergei started to investigate, and um, he was the one who came back and said, not only have they stolen your companies, but the documents that were seized by the police were then used to create a bunch of fake backdated contracts to claim that your companies owed a billion dollars to three empty shell companies. We said, my God, that's terrible. 
He said, if you think that's terrible, it gets worse. <laughs> no. Um, he said, the shell companies then took your companies to court for a billion dollars. He, he said, and the next detail you won't believe. He said, three lawyers showed up to defend your companies in court, but the lawyers pled guilty to a billion dollars of fake liabilities. Let me just stop you there. Just to be 100% clear, this entire story that you've just been told, the three shell companies that you owe money to, the appearances in court, the three lawyers who turned up and pled guilty in court, every last bit of this story from start to finish, you are saying this is a fiction. So, let, me, let me be clear. There was no billion dollars of liabilities. We, we never even knew about a court case because we no longer owned our companies. We never hired any lawyers. And it was created out of thin air by a bunch of criminals in order to achieve a massive scam. And I'll tell you what they were trying to achieve. The court then took this guilty plea at face value, which is a bit odd in the first place because why would you even need to show up in court if the defendant is immediately pleading guilty? Why not just settle it out of court? So the judges were clearly in some way involved because the judges then created a billion dollars of court judgments based on fake contracts. At that point, Lieutenant Colonel Artum Kuznetsov, the same guy who called us up for the informal meeting, the same guy who raided our offices, then shows up at all of our banks looking for a billion dollars of assets to seize based on these fake court judgments. Now, remember, we, we got rid of all of our assets out of Russia, so there was nothing in our banks. And he came back to us in June of 2008 with the most spectacular and horrible discovery. And that was they went to the tax authorities. And our companies in 2006 had paid $230 million of taxes. And the criminals, this group of police officers, government officials, and organized criminals, went to the tax authorities, and they said to the tax authorities, a mistake was made last year. A billion dollars of profits never really happened because, look, here's a billion dollars of court-sanctioned losses. So profits were actually zero. Therefore, it was a big mistake, the $230 million taxes that were paid. They said, we'd like an immediate refund. They applied for the refund two days before Christmas in 2007. It was the largest refund in Russian tax history, and it was granted one day later. No questions asked. So what they'd managed to do is, when they discovered that there was no actual profits to take, they managed a way to figure out how to squeeze the last amount of money that they could, a $230 million tax refund. They stole $230 million, but it's very important to point out the, the Russian officials stole $230 million from their own country. And so we filed like 17 different complaints, figuring that the next day there would be SWAT teams and helicopters going after the bad guys. And, and did that happen? There were SWAT teams and helicopters, but they weren't going after the bad guys. We had SWAT teams and helicopters going after all seven of our lawyers from four different law firms. Including, I shall assume, Sergey. All of them, including Sergey. At this point, I called up every lawyer and I said, we need to evacuate you. And I said, I will finance your evacuation. I will find you a place to live in London. I will pay you a salary. Get the hell out now. And six of the seven lawyers left the country. And who stayed behind? Sergei was the only one who refused to leave. Why? Sergei came from a slightly different generation. Sergei was 36 years old. He, ha he wasn't a grown-up during the capricious time of the Soviet era. And he didn't know how bad it could get. And he said to us, I've not broken any laws. I know the law better than anybody. There's no legal hook in which they can arrest me. None. Sergei believed that justice, in the end, would triumph. And then he did the thing that, that finally broke the whole situation in a terrible way, which was he testified against the police officers in October of 2008, along with naming the names of the um, organized criminals. And when he did that, we didn't know what was going to happen, and we were relieved. He went and testified against them, and he walked out a free man after his testimony. Sergei wasn't free for long. In November 2008, agents of the Interior Ministry came to his home, arrested him in front of his wife and two children, and put him in a detention center. This is Sergei at one of his legal hearings, where his precise arguments were rejected without consideration by the judge. They first put him in a cell with eight inmates and four beds and left the lights on 24 hours a day. So they had to sleep in shifts. And when they weren't sleeping, they were standing. 
And they came to him after a month and said, withdraw your testimony and sign a false confession saying you stole the $230 million and everything will get a lot easier for you. And Sergei was a guy who absolutely would not get involved in that kind of nonsense. And he said, no way. They then stuck him in his cell with no toilet, just a hole in the floor. And whenever the other inmates in, in adjoining cells would flush their toilet, the sewage would bubble up from the hole in the floor. And after about six months of this, Sergei started to get sick. He lost 20 kilos, and he started having severe stomach pains. And he was diagnosed as having pancreatitis and gallstones and needing an operation. Was it treated? One week before the operation was scheduled to happen, they went in again and said, are you ready to sign this false confession? And this is, this is where you have to understand the difference between Sergei Magnitsky and, and a regular man. At, at this point, anyone, anyone would have broken. But, but for his own sense of self and his own sense of who he was, he refused. And so they abruptly moved him out of the prison that had a medical facility where they were going to give him an operation for his pancreatitis and gallstones. And they moved him to Butyrka Prison, which, for anyone who knows anything about Russia, is the worst prison in Russia. It's a maximum security prison. And most importantly for Sergei, there was no medical facilities there. And at Butyrka, he developed such excruciating pain that he would lie in a fetal position for hours howling while his um, cellmate would bang on the door trying to get medical attention. Did he ever come close to cracking, ever? As far as I'm aware, at no point did he ever, ever crack. Were they counting on him cracking? Everybody cracks. Everybody cracks within the first week. It's completely unprecedented to have a guy like Sergei Magnitsky. They didn't know what they were, they, they, they had no idea. Not only did he not crack, but one month before his death, Sergei wrote in an extremely detailed form the names of everybody involved in the scam, naming extra names in more detail from his prison cell, even after 11 months of, of, of this torture. When did you learn that Sergei had died? Sergei went four months in Butyrka untreated for his pancreatitis, and it just got worse and worse and worse. And on the night of November 16th, he went into critical condition. And on that night, they then moved him, after four months of requests for medical treatment, they moved him back to a prison facility with a medical center. But instead of treating him at the medical center, they put him into a straitjacket, chained him to a bed, and put him into an isolation cell with doctors waiting right outside the door, and they waited one hour and 18 minutes until he was dead. He was 37 years old. I learned about it. I got a phone call at 7.30 in the morning, and the phone doesn't usually ring at 7.30 in the morning, and I just knew it was a bad call. I didn't know what it was about. I didn't know that, that any of this stuff had happened the night before. And when I got a call, it was like a knife through my heart. And the only thing that, the, the only thing that I could think positively about it is that they couldn't torture him anymore. That was, as, I, as I thought he was dead, I thought they can't inflict any more pain on Sergei Magnitsky. The pain was over. In the meantime, the people who were indirectly and directly involved in Sergei's death, the prosecutor, the judge, officials from the Interior Ministry, all these people were involved in Sergei's death. What happened to them? Well, in Russia, in the Interior Ministry, they have a, a thing called National Police Day. And there's like several hundred thousand people who work in the Interior Ministry. And every year they award 32 awards for great service. And five of the 32 people who got awards um, one week before Sergei's, the anniversary of Sergei's death in their custody, were people directly involved in the torture, persecution, and death of Sergei Magnitsky. These people who we're talking about, they weren't just involved in Sergei's death. They were also involved in the theft of state money, money that came from the Russian treasury. How is it that they got away with it? How is it that Putin or Medvedev or whoever was in charge of that at the time didn't come down on them like a ton of bricks? Well, we discovered that there were nine other scams just like this. In fact, Sergei was the one who uncovered it before he got arrested, totaling half a billion dollars. And that was just what we were able to discover in documents, which means that there were several billion dollars of money going missing through the same scam. This goes right up to the highest level. This is, this is serious, high-level crime involving the most senior members of the Russian government. And how high do you think this goes? It goes right up to the cabinet ministers, maybe even higher. Maybe even higher means? Maybe means the prime minister or the president. You're alleging now that Vladimir Putin may have been actually involved in the death of Sergei. Either he was involved or he's covering for the people who are.
You talk throughout this interview about your admiration for Sergei's principles. Is it possible to be too principled? I mean, should Sergei have fought the good fight another time and do whatever he'd have to do to get himself out of jail? I wish that he had. I wish every day that he had. I would have never begrudged him for a second if he'd done anything to save his own life. It eats me up inside that, that, that his eight-year-old son doesn't have a father. I, I have a duty to him and his memory and his legacy to make sure that, that justice is done, that his cries from the grave are heard loud and clear by me and the other people around him that loved him, and we're going to get the people who did it. You're going to get them. We're going to get them, and we're not going to stop until we do. Since going public with this story, William Bradder and his staff have received threats, 11 so far by their count. Their text messages in Russian saying things like, if history teaches us anything, it's that anyone can be killed. They also got phone calls like this one. was left at 3.53 a.m. First of all, hello. It's been 11, possibly 12 years. Wow. Since we did that first interview for Radio Netherlands, could I also say that I look 20 years older and you look identical to that moment in time? Yeah, I, I, I looked like this when I was a baby. So <laughs> um, it just doesn't. <laughs> That's incredible. Actually, so what I did was in preparation for this interview is I went back and I re-listened to it so that it was fresh in my head. At the end of that interview, you probably don't remember this because I suspect you don't listen to it every day. <laughs> you said talking about the people who are responsible for Sergei's death, we're going to get them. <laughs> yep. Did you get them? Yeah. There's about uh, 50 or 60 of them, and they're sanctioned by the United States, by Canada, by the UK, by uh, Australia. So they're on four different company country sanctions lists. We've also gone after the, the money that they stole. We have frozen uh, about $40 million in a number of different countries, and some of that money is being seized right now. A lot of these people have become world famous as a result, can't get visas, can't travel, can't do anything they, they want to do, can't do business anymore. Almost every single one of them has been fired from their jobs because they're so infamous. So we, we, none of them are serving time for torture and murder, and that's going to carry on until Putin is no longer in power. But we definitely got back at these people for what they did. I was thinking about how the fact that subsequent to all this, a lot of things have changed but that also a lot of things have stayed the same or even gotten worse. Yeah. What's changed for you? Well, I, I used to go around the world trying to convince people that Russia was a criminal empire, criminal regime, a mafia state, and that it needed to be contained and, and aggressively contained. And everybody looked at me like I was some kind of party pooper, that I had like my own personal problems that shouldn't be affecting all these other good folks who were buying gas and doing business with the Russians. It's like unprofitable, my message. And I was screaming this from the rooftops. And, and of course, I turned out to be entirely correct. And um, all the people who were shunning me and freezing me out and trying to um, stifle my message um, have all found themselves to be um, having been in the wrong place. And, and of course, I, I take no pleasure in that because look at the um, damage that has been done by Putin. But we're now in a world where everybody has come around to my point of view. I was about to say, uh, that was one of the major things that's changed is the fact that you no longer have to convince people. I mean, what's the word that you would use to describe Russia? A klepto state? I mean... Klep klepto-fascist regime. A klepto-fascist regime. You also said at one point, and this wasn't in our interview, but in subsequent interviews, you said that you're Vladimir Putin's Public enemy number one, is that still the case or has this list gotten longer? <laughs> no, so, so it's, it's not that he hates me any less. I mean, he really truly hated me more than anything in the world after the Magnitsky Act was passed. 
<clears throat> the Magnitsky Act, you know, kind of kind of hit him right where it counts. His he steals, kills, and then steals money, keeps it abroad, and and now I was coming up with this legislation to put his fortune at risk. So he hated me more than anything. But uh, since he started this war in Ukraine, of course, he hates Zelensky more than me because he's giving him a run for his money. And in the meantime, I think he also hates Alexei Navalny more than me. And so I, I would say that I, I, I used to be enemy number one. I'm now probably enemy number three behind uh, Zelensky and Navalny. But um, Well, he's got Navalny. He's got him, but he, he's also scared of Navalny. I mean, he, he, he could have killed Navalny uh, at any point. He's chosen not to because I think he's scared that Navalny's followers, uh, who are many in the millions, would might very well you know, rise up if, they, if he did something to him. Are you still being threatened? Definitely. There's no question about it. You know, the Russians, when they issue their fatwas, uh, like the Iranians, they never forget. Look what happened to Salman Rushdie 33 years after his fatwa. They're still coming after me in a lot of different ways, unfortunately. Can you give me an example? Just like in the last week, I'm defending myself against a lawsuit, a def defamation suit in the federal court in Washington, D.C., because I called the Russian individual who was the second person at the Trump Tower meeting, I called him a spy, a Russian spy, after he called himself a Russian spy and it was reported by NBC and I just retweeted NBC's article, their description of him, and uh, he's suing me. I mean, he's been suing me for four years in, in Washington, D.C. federal court. And, and of course, this is just part of a what I believe to be a, an ongoing um, campaign to go after me. You were also being uh, physically threatened. You were being threatened with death. People were calling you up. Is that kind of stuff still going on? Or yeah, no, no question. The, the, the death, the death threats are, are carrying carrying on. No question. And the the main way they want to get me is by bringing me back to Russia, torturing me, getting me to make a false confession, saying the Magnitsky case was all made up, and then kill me in Russian prison. That's their big fantasy. How do you know that that's the plan? You can just hear you can hear it in all of their public statements. I mean, you know, Putin doesn't make any he doesn't try to beat around the bush when he when he makes public statements, he says, you know, Bill Browder is a liar and he did this and he did that and so on and so forth and he's a criminal and Sergei Magnitsky was not any good guy either and and uh, we, all these criminals need to be brought to justice and we will bring them to justice and so on and so forth. Well, he can't be accused of subtlety. Normally he doesn't say anything. He he normally said like he he's never mentioned na named the the name Navalny once. You know he says that you know that individual that that blogger. Um, he he never mentions their names. In my case, he's constantly spewing my name out. He just browder browder. He just hates me. And and that of course has to do with the great success of the uh, Sergei Magnitsky Accountability Act. Yeah, which you've been shopping around from nation to nation. And how many? Countries have adopted it now? We're now at 35. So we have the U US, Canada, the UK, 27 countries of the European Union, Australia, Norway, Iceland, uh, Montenegro, Kosovo. Uh, the Czech Republic is about to put uh, their own individual Magnitsky Act on the books um, before the end of the year. And more on deck. We're working on Japan, working on New Zealand. Could you just very briefly describe it? Yeah, basically, it goes for Putin's Achilles heel. It freezes it freezes the assets of uh, human rights violators and kleptocrats and bans their visas. And um, it's very, very powerful um, because it goes after the individuals. It doesn't, it doesn't say, we're mad at Russia, we're going to sanction Russia. It says, it says, we're mad at these specific people and we're going to ruin their financial lives, which we have done and will continue to do. And this is something that really gets under their skin because this is what these guys do. They, they, nobody goes into government in Russia to serve the people. Um, they go into government to steal money from the lowest traffic cop right up to the uh, president of Russia. Nobody is there as a patriot. They're just there as thieves and and uh, and they love their money. They kill for their money. They, they love money more than human life. And now all of a sudden their money is not so good for them anymore. So you've been extraordinarily effective at going after them where they live. This hasn't been without a price. Uh, you have to watch your back already now for more than a decade. Yeah. I'm sorry. I've, I've actually tried to look into your personal life a little bit, but I'm getting some conflicting messages. You currently, you have a wife and three kids. Is this correct? 
Um, I, I have a wife, but I, I never quantify the number of kids. Um, not not because I don't know, but 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 um, I don't want to make it any easier for my enemies to sort of you know start tracking my family. But um, uh, at least three kids. So they're obviously hyper aware of the things that you do. How do they feel about all of this? About you, you're you're going around and putting yourself in the line of fire and potentially putting them in the line of fire. My wife, of course, has a perspective on it, but my kids don't know any different. I mean, it's not like they have a, you know, a, a control group where they can say, "Here's what life is like when your dad's not doing this, and here's what it's like when he is." I mean, I've, all, all they've known is this. Uh, you know, I, I was just helping one of my kids fill out an application for another school, and they asked about uh, you know something important to them, and, and one of my kids wrote about how um, proud she was to come from a family of courageous leaders, and and. Uh, how important what I did was to her. And so from my perspective, I wouldn't want my children to think I was a coward. I want, want them to think that I'm a man who's ready to stand up for what I believe in. Just like Sergey did. Exactly. That must have felt good. It felt, it did feel good. It was nice to see that uh, I don't necessarily have as much time as other fathers to spend with their kids because I'm traveling the world, you know, meeting with governments and parliaments and so on. And, and that does take its toll as well. But um this particular one of my children acknowledged that there was some benefit to the sacrifice. That's gratifying. Um, I asked you at the very beginning of this interview about the fact that some things had uh, changed and some things had stayed the same. I think one of the things that's changed was that a lot of Western democracy seemed to be doing just fine when it comes to creating homegrown fascism. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, it's interesting. One of the things which which sort of surprised me is when I first started this campaign, there was no difference between anybody and anybody else politically in the United States when it came to Russia at the top end of the spectrum, not in the government, but in Congress. Yeah. And now we have a situation where there is some, not a huge group, but there's some group of really right-wing Republicans that are actually pro-Putin right now. There's Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and Madison Cawthorn, these sort of hardcore Trump-like Congress people that are just like signed up for this weird, I, I could have never imagined that there'd be like, you know, a dozen people voting against Finland and Sweden joining NATO and not voting against the reauthorization of the Magnitsky Act and things like that. You know, of course, we've seen all over the world this crazy stuff with Bolsonaro in Brazil and Erdogan in Turkey and Duterte in the Philippines and so on, where, you know, they've gone full on fascist. And so it is boring and, and it's, you know, hard to imagine that that the world is so much worse than it was 20 years ago when it comes to this political leanings of different governments. They held CPAC in Budapest. Indeed. Of course, Orban. <laughs> we can't, can't have a conversation without mentioning Orban. It seems to me like you and I are in agreement that at the moment right now, things are a bit depressing. Well, yeah, I think a bit depressing is maybe an understatement. I think we're, we're I mean, you know, you look at what's happening in Ukraine, do we have the um, wherewithal to to carry through and to carry on and to help the Ukrainians win this war? And and I'm starting to have worries about that. Reading between the lines of in different countries, it's pretty worrying. And so we're getting to the point in this interview where I'm asking you for advice, and we ask all of our guests to come up with five pieces of advice that they might be able to give to people who are listening right now about how to deal with the times that we're living in now. You, and I, I asked you that too. Have you given it any thought? So I've been dealing with this dystopia <laughs> from Russia since the whole thing started. Well, so they wanted to kill me and they didn't want to um, firebomb my house back in the day. I think that was too much fire, you know, killing a foreigner on foreign soil. You know, they, wa they wanted to kill a foreigner on Russian soil. And so they wanted to get me back to Russia and they had a hard time getting me back to Russia because I was being protected by governments of the West, by UK government and US government, et cetera. Their whole big thing was to try to change the narrative to say that I was a criminal, Sergei was a criminal, and, and these governments shouldn't protect us. And then, and by not protecting me, they could then get me back and kill me. And so they launched the most far reaching, deep, wide campaign of disinformation to try to convince the, everybody in the world, the media, the governments, that, that I was some type of criminal. It was the, the most well-resourced defamation campaign of all defamation campaigns that's ever existed. You know, they were, they spent literally tens of millions of dollars on this. And it was really, really hard to fight against because they would hire Westerners 
they would hire lawyers and PR firms and investigators and lobbyists to go around and try to tell an alternative story. But no matter how much, and this comes to my advice, no matter how much money they spent on it, no matter how many people of influence and power they got on, on their side, the truth ultimately prevails. The truth is something that I just had to explain, re-explain, use social media, YouTube, Twitter, PowerPoint, radio interviews, TV interviews, books, and eventually the truth won over fiction. It was a full-time job for nearly 10 years. I could never rest for a minute, but I was able to share the truth. And, and most reasonable people can tell the difference between the truth and all this other type of stuff. It's when you get into either unreasonable people or somebody just not having the energy levels that I had. So I don't think we're, you know, that everyone talks about this um, post-truth world. I don't think we're in a post-truth world. It's just the people who are telling the truth just need to work much harder at it to make sure that, that everybody gets it. And I succeeded. I'm still here. So your advice is don't get discouraged and keep telling the truth and work harder at telling the truth. And, and work your ass off to tell the truth and use every possible tool to tell the truth and just be so energetic that the people who are telling the lies just don't have the energy to keep up with you. Because the alternative is... The alternative for me was death. The alternative for the world is is eventually death if we, you know... I mean, it's it's a very serious business to be, you know, living in a world where these sort of conscious lies would be believed. Has this all been worth it, Bill? Well, of course it has. So they, the, this is all driven by the murder of my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky. He was tortured for 358 days in Russian police custody and murdered at the age of 37. And he was murdered because he would work for me. He was work for, he would mur murder because he was my lawyer. It would poison me from the inside if I didn't do something about it. And so the antidote to that poison was to go out every day and fight like hell to make sure that the people who killed him face justice. And, and uh, we haven't gotten sort of the true justice of imprisonment for torture and murder, but we're a lot further away from total impunity than we were when we started. I'm sure that every single person who was involved in the Magnitsky murder and the torture and the crime he uncovered ruse the day that they were because their lives were much different than if they hadn't done that. And um, that's better than nothing. One last thing before we go. Um, if Sergei were here right now, what would you say to him? Well, I think uh, I would say I'm so, so sorry that, you know, associating with me led to the end of your life and that I will carry on fighting for your name, for your legacy until my last days as well. That's great. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Great to talk with Bill Browder after all this time. He's written a few books about his experiences called uh, Red Notice. That's one from a while back. I got a signed copy and a new one called Freezing Order. If you've ever wondered how oligarchs and corrupt officials get away with hiding their money, this is the book for you. Hannah, Jordy, what'd you guys think of the interviews? Honestly, I had to take a minute to sit down and comprehend everything that Bill just said. It is such an unbelievable story. Kind of without words, which is not a good thing for a podcast, but 358 days of torture and then still standing up for your values. That's, that's impressive. And it's, it's pretty incredible that Bill is, is still persevering with the Magnitsky Act as well. 35 countries is, is such an amazing number to have enacted the legislation in. And that's, that's kind of the positive side of this story, right? It's good to see that so many countries are standing up to a bully like Putin and his friends. Because it's it's kind of scary to think that he has so much power. I'm, I'm convinced that most Russians don't agree with everything that Putin is doing these days. I've, I've traveled in Russia myself, met some amazing, kind, impressive people. And it's, it's also really sad to think that so many people are suffering in Russia without having the means to do anything about it. It's really all about a system that he has built around himself that seems so hard to break. I think we know that for sure not all of Russians agree with Putin and, and his regime. So many have fled the country themselves since the war in Ukraine. Um, and just a little plug here, we actually have some more insights into this uh, with our Diary of a Russian series that you can find on our website, um, where Vera uh, not only was detained in Moscow for protesting against the war, but once she finally did manage to get out, she actually went to help refugees from Ukraine at the border of Poland. And she's just one 
example of a Russian not agreeing with Putin and, and his regime. And I'm sure there are so, so many others. What's that URL, Hannah? Um, you can find that story at www.daretobegray.com. What's that again? Daretobegray.com. <laughs> Daretobegray.com. <laughs> Amongst many other stories, right, Hannah? Daretobegray.com. Our website, even, not our channel. <laughs> After listening to this, because we were sort of prevaricating as to whether or not Russia counted as a fascist dictatorship, but I think right now we all agree it's it's completely a fascist dictatorship, right? There's no gray here, is there? Ooh, that's that's a dangerous claim, Jonathan. But I th- I think this this sounds like a pretty black and white situation. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, recently I was reading this book, uh, "Nothing Is True and Everything Is Possible" by Peter Pomerantsev. And it also paints a pretty interesting picture of, of Russia under Putin, um, how, how this is such a weird space in which the rich and powerful can pretty much do anything they can imagine. And your average Joe, of course, is suffering and can even be the victim of their, their actions. And from a distance from Western Europe, from the Netherlands, I mean, right now, it's, it's hard to comprehend how, how that is. You know, corruption seems so abstract especially from our perspective. But a story like Bill's really brings that to life, how, how toxic and erosive it is for pretty much all democratic values, human rights. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's not very gray, is it? It definitely is not. And Bill's story is just, it's pretty incredible. And the fact that he's still working to get his story out now more than what a, a decade later, um, I think, as well now more than ever with the war in Ukraine it's so important for people to understand how far back this kind of thing stems in Russia and also why sanctions are so important mm-hmm. yeah oh sanctions you know a lot of people complained when when Russia invaded Ukraine that sec- sanctions were our weapons in the face of war but i think this story kind of shows that it works right it's it's making sure that people are hit where where it hurts making sure that people who are part of the system become infamous you know if we if we label i think i think bill labeled russia a mafia state well then you have to go after that mafia structure go after their business model um and it seems also to be a bit more realistic than fighting a country fight the individuals who are the bad guys right i think my key takeaway from from your interview with Bill is that he, he mentions truth one over fiction. These fascists, they create such a difficult story to break down. Well, apparently through sanctions, you can, you can hit them. But it, it seems to be very hard work. I think the only reason why it worked is because Bill Browder understood that by choosing this path, he was putting himself in the line of fire. He was prepared to die for it. And he still, it seems to me, despite the fact that, that now... 11, 12 years later, he's got a wife and children and his life has changed a lot. He's got a lot to live for. He, he's decided that he's going to keep doing this and understands fully that this may cost him his life. You have to be that kind of person. So we will put a link to Bill Browder's website on our show page. Coping with Dystopia is a production of Dare to be Gray. And you can find out more about us and check out our inspiring stories we already mentioned it we'll say it again dare to be great.com dare to be great.com where you can also tell us what you think about what you heard suggest a topic for us to talk about and this podcast is made possible with a grant from the rights equality and citizenship program of the european commission jordy hannah thank you thank you jonathan thank you jonathan i'm jonathan gruber this is coping with dystopia and we hope you cope just a little better Thanks for listening.